The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. And so we are seeing them lean forward in, in making the case for why coming forward to law enforcement is is worth victims' time. And there are a few things that that I can think of uh, that are more valuable to those victims than the prospect of getting a decryption key that will allow them to get their systems back up and running after one of these attacks. I'm Stephanie Pell, Senior Editor at Lawfare, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, February 9th, 2023. On January 26th, the Department of Justice held a press conference to announce its months-long disruption campaign against the Hive ransomware group that had targeted more than 1,500 victims over 80 countries around the world, including hospitals, school districts, financial firms, and critical infrastructure. In July of 2022, the FBI penetrated Hive's computer networks, captured its decryption keys, and, over the course of the ensuing months, offered the decryption keys to victims worldwide, preventing these victims from having to pay $130 million in ransom that Hive demanded. To talk about this disruption operation, I sat down with Alex Iftimi, partner at the law firm Morrison Forster, and a former federal prosecutor in the National Security and Cybercrime Units in the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Eastern District of Virginia. We talked about how the Hive ransomware group operated, the significant aspects of this disruption operation, and how this disruption operation fits into the broader picture of U.S. government efforts to disrupt ransomware groups and actors. It's the Lawfare Podcast, February 9th. Alex Iftimi on the DOJ disruption of the Hive ransomware group. Alex, can you start by telling us a bit about the Hive ransomware group? What did they do? Who were their victims? And why was it important to disrupt their operations? Thanks so much for having me. The uh, Hive ransomware group has been around since the summer of 2021. They became one of the most prolific ransomware groups out there by mid-2022, uh, right around the time that the Conti ransomware group went out of favor, and, and the Conti group went out of favor after they made public statements in support of the Russian invasion of, of Ukraine. It led a lot of victims and a lot of the companies that support victims to uh, refuse to make payments to to that group, and and it seems like a lot of the affiliates and actors who who were part of that group then migrated to Hive and and other ransomware groups. In in terms of the types of sectors targeted, Hive has 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 targeted a wide array of groups, everything from the energy sector to healthcare to the financial, media, education sectors. 
they are one of a number of ransomware groups out there that operate on a ransomware as a service model. That is, there are developers uh, who develop the ransomware suite of, of tools, and they essentially lease that infrastructure out to affiliates who go out to identify victims, to obtain access to the networks of those victims, and and who are the ones who actually deploy ransomware. And uh, an, another defining feature of, of this group is that they, they also operate on, on what's called a, a double extortion model, which is to say, in addition to encrypting data on systems, they also go in and, and before encrypting that data, steal data from victims' networks to increase the leverage that that this group has. So even if a, a victim could, for example, restore systems from backups, the, the ransomware group will use the threat of publishing the stolen data from, from the victim's network as another means of, of extorting the victim. And in one of the search warrants, or, or the only search warrant, I should say, that was unsealed after the press conference, it indicated that the Hive ransomware group set up a hidden service or operated through a hidden service on the Tor network. Can you talk a bit about that? Sure. That and essentially what that means is that they are operating their their servers, including the the backend servers that the ransomware operators and the affiliates use, as well as the servers that a victim would need to access in order to find out the ransom demand and to negotiate with with the high ransomware group, all of those are are located on on the dark web, and essentially, in this case, it is systems that are accessible via a Tor browser. Tor stands for the Onion Router. It is a protocol that essentially bounces communications around a variety of different computers before reaching their ultimate destination, and and that allows the actors to essentially obfuscate the location of of the actual servers. And a big part of the reason to use these dark web services is to avoid takedowns by law enforcement organizations or even the service providers who are making those those services available. Their chat portals and shaming websites and other infrastructure are easier to protect on the dark web than they would be on the open internet where they would have an IP address that resolves to a particular server and uh, and could be more more easily shut down as a result. Alex, you've held positions both advising senior officials at the Department of Justice and prosecuting cybercrime cases. Can you give us an overview of what we know about the disruption operation based on public statements made by DOJ and FBI officials and the search warrant that was unsealed? Sure, and, and I should start by saying I really don't know anything about this operation beyond uh, what I've also read from the search warrant affidavits, but I, I can give you a sense of, of what I see and in, informed by by some of that prior experience. So we know that DOJ used a warrant to search and seize two servers located in Los Angeles that belonged to the Hive ransomware group. We also know that Dutch law enforcement around the same time conducted a similar operation against a server in, in the Netherlands to, to shut down that server. We also know that in, in 
in January, the Department of Justice used the search warrant not just to get the contents of the server and, and see what is there, but also to seize the server and essentially deny the Hive ransomware group any further access to, to that server. We we know that this is the latest in what appears to have been a string of search warrants beginning in, in the summer of, of 2022 that law enforcement used to obtain information on on the group, including Hive communications, uh, including the information around 250 affiliates that that operate using the the Hive ransomware tools and other information uh, about the 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 group, and and so this is a protracted law enforcement investigation that that lasted a number of months and and it seems like they they had quite a bit of of access to to the networks uh and and operations of of the ransomware group and and I should add folks who who have been following this news will know that one of the most significant aspects of the of the DOJ operation is that over the course of that 6 month period between um, the summer of 2022 and, and January, when these servers were finally taken down, the Department of Justice used the access to those servers to surreptitiously take uh, decryption keys that the Hive ransomware group was was storing on those servers and to pass those on to victims who had come forward to, to law enforcement and who were cooperating with law enforcement. And so... Um, for the first time, we we see here law enforcement using the access to these groups to to help um, hundreds of victims who whose systems had been encrypted and who, as a result of the assistance of law enforcement, were able to get decryption keys that that helped them get up and running uh, a lot more quickly than they otherwise might have. This operation that you have described, where we've learned that over the course of several months. The Department of Justice, I, I presume working with the FBI and maybe international partners, as was referenced at the press conference, has been giving decryption keys to victims. Is, is that a new model for addressing ransomware groups and uh, the way they are harming victims? Well, I, I'd say it, it's certainly the most significant effort yet to to do that. Um, it's not the first time that it's happened. The FBI previously released keys for the Revil group that was responsible for attack, the attack on, on Kaseya and on the meatpacking plant uh, JBS. And in in that case, I should say the 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 FBI was criticized for not releasing that information more quickly. They they were criticized for having waited a few weeks before releasing the decryption keys that that would have helped victims. Um, the FBI at the time said they were working to make sure that the decryption keys didn't contain malware, that they were safe for victims to use, that they didn't you know perhaps compromise the integrity of the operation that they were undertaking. And and so in that case they did a good deed, but nevertheless um, got some criticism for the timing of doing it. Here it seems like they 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 learned from that experience, and the affidavit, for example, notes in uh, at least one place that they were able to get decryption keys to victims within hours of of obtaining those 
um, those decryption keys and, and within hours of those vi- of those victims being in compromised and, and encrypted, uh, having their systems encrypted by the Hive ransomware group. So it shows that each time law enforcement does one of these operations, they're 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 learning from what they've done in the past. The operations become uh, more audacious. They 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 and they end up helping more more victims in the process. And this isn't a new model for them. The Department of Justice and, and the FBI for the better part of a decade really have focused on victims as being at the center of these cyber investigations. Um, and that's been true since the investigations of nation-state-sponsored attacks in, in 2014, 2015, the first cases um, against North Korean hackers and, and Chinese state-sponsored hackers that were all built based off of the cooperation of, um, of victims who had key information that allowed that allowed the FBI to pursue those actors. And so what we're seeing here in the context of ransomware is the same playbook generally being used, that the cooperation of victims is critical for law enforcement to be able to advance their investigations. And so we are seeing them lean forward in, in making the case for why coming forward to law enforcement is is worth victims' time. And there are a few things that that I can think of uh, that are more valuable to those victims than the prospect of getting a decryption key that will allow them to get their systems back up and running after one of these attacks. And this effort that you've spoken about with respect to the value of getting victims to cooperate with the FBI um, and law enforcement, is that unique or significant across the federal government? In other words, have you seen instances of maybe where other agencies aren't as victim-friendly, if you will? I do think it's um, it's unique. Uh, it, it's driven in part by the mission of, of the Department of Justice and, and the FBI, right? Their, their mission is is to pursue the threat actors, to, to pursue the criminals, to identify them, to disrupt their their operations. And increasingly, part of the mission of, of the FBI is, is also to protect our national assets. And so working with victims and, and helping them defend their networks or recover from these attacks is is itself part of uh, of the mission of of law enforcement, and I think that's that that's an important mission that that these agencies have. The reality is, other agencies have different missions, right? When when you think about the FTC or the SEC or the CFTC or whatever regulatory agency may be out there, their their goal is to regulate a particular sector and to make sure that. That sector is operating efficiently. That it is meeting in, in in certain minimum cybersecurity baselines. That it's protecting consumers or investors. And because of those different missions, oftentimes you see those regulatory agencies set their sights on on the victims of these cyber attacks as as potential targets for enforcement actions. And so it's it's a complicated landscape uh, when you think about the federal agencies and and not all federal agencies are are built the same and have the same interests and so it's important for 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 folks to really 
think through, you know, what what an engagement with a particular law enforcement agency or or other agency will will look like at the outset. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for the award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. How significant do you think an operation like this is? I, I've heard some commentators, you know, describe a disruption effort like this as kind of whack-a-mole and, and that these actors um, tend to reconstitute in, in other forms or with other groups. So from a broader perspective, how significant do you think an operation like this is? I think a operation like this is tremendously significant. First and foremost, the the value of this operation is the immediate benefit to victims who to hundreds of victims who are able to get decryption keys and recover their networks more quickly, perhaps uh, avoiding a a ransom payment, the affidavit and 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 the announcements by the Department of Justice suggest that more than 300 victims were were provided decryption keys and that this prevented more than 130 million dollars in in ransom payments and so certainly it is true and and I agree with the the commentary out there about this operation that ransomware groups reconstitute themselves there's every reason to believe that the Hive ransomware group includes affiliates that were pre- previously part of any number of other ransomware groups, whether it be Conti or Play or any number of other groups. And and in fact, that's part of what makes this operation so critical is, you know, they they probably could have disrupted these servers much earlier than they did. And instead, they sat on them and used that access to essentially defeat uh, the ransomware group by by providing decryption keys to to the victims that that were being harmed by by the group, and the other important part of this operation, in my view, is that if you are one of those hive hackers or or affiliates, it is uh, a really uncomfortable feeling to know that the U.S. government was in your network for many months and that they have obtained information about the 250 plus affiliates who who were using Hive ransomware. And that itself has a deterrent effect. A, the, the reality is that most of these individuals are operating out of safe haven jurisdictions that are unlikely to go out and, and arrest these individuals themselves. But 
as hackers think about you know the choices they're going to make and whether they, whether to pursue a life in 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 the ransomware industry they they will be thinking about the fact that it might mean that they're never going to be able to travel uh outside of their home jurisdiction that they may be sought after that there may be interpol red notices uh wherever they go and that itself is a deterrent to to this type of activity. And I think it's a, a, an important one. So you've referenced the fact that this was an ongoing operation and clearly a decision was made to seize these servers the end of January and announce the disruption of, of this group. Given your background at the Department of Justice, can you give us a sense about how such decisions are made and how various kinds of equities are balanced? You know, there's a trade-off when these decisions are are made, and it's it's a trade-off that that has been around for for a long time in terms of you know the disruptive value versus the intelligence gathering value of continuing to surveil a server or uh, continuing to get information about a particular threat group. And the reality is, I expect, you know, these decisions are going to be made by the, the leadership of the FBI, the leadership of the Department of Justice, taking into account the potential benefit of continuing to 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 conduct an investigation. Are you likely as a result of staying quiet about the access that you've obtained, whether you might be able to identify additional individuals responsible, whether you might be able to arrest those individuals. And and on the other end, thinking about the benefit to the victims who have been harmed, what is the disruption operation likely to do in terms of, of disrupting the the ransomware group that, that is being investigated? What disruption benefit will there be for the broader ecosystem in terms of you know are, are these individuals just going to reconstitute themselves as a as a different group or move to different infrastructure and also what is the benefit to the victims who are likely to benefit from this operation in terms of your ability to provide them with with decryption keys or other things like that so there there are a lot of factors at at play and and there really isn't there there really isn't a formula that in my experience, the department or FBI uses to reach the right decision here. It's ultimately sitting in a room and, and thinking through these various benefits and and the judgment of of the leadership who are who are going to make those hard calls. So a lot of what we know about how the disruption operation occurred and the department's efforts and the FBI's efforts to to help victims, of course, comes from the search warrant that was unsealed at the time of the press conference on January 26th, then statements made by senior officials at that press conference. As you've noted, we did learn that the FBI has had access to Hive servers or other infrastructure at least as early as July of 2022, and that such access appears to be continual and ongoing. Do you have a sense of which authorities were used and permitted the government to maintain this ongoing access? 
Stephanie, it's a it's a good question and one that I was noodling over as well as as I was listening to the announcement from from the Department of Justice. It it turns out the affidavit that uh, that was unsealed answers that question, and it 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 says that the Department of of Justice obtained those decryption keys and and other information from a series of search warrants that uh that they issued over the over the past 6 months. So it was similar search warrants likely to the one that that we saw in in January of 2023, but of course they used that warrant not to seize the servers instead simply to obtain information from those servers that they then used to to pass on to to the victims. It's it's a Rule 41 search warrant, essentially the same authority that allows law enforcement to search your house or, um, or your email account. And it allows them to obtain anything that is evidence of a crime or, or property that, that was used in, in committing a crime. And so the, the authority certainly is, is squarely on point for, for, for law enforcement to use to, to get copies of the server. That does mean, though, that it really wasn't continuous access to that server. Rather, it was periodic updates that they were getting each time they, they obtained a search warrant to essentially get a copy of, of, that, of that server as a point in time and to see what, um, what was sitting on, on that server. I do think there is an interesting question of, of what authorities can be used in the future to to perhaps get more continuous access to to these servers in in real time and i think there's a, a good conversation to be had about whether uh to the extent that servers are are abroad there are uh cyber command uh authorities or perhaps partnerships with foreign law enforcement that that could be used or even the cooperation of of service providers uh, to get to get information in in real time from from these servers, because there's there's no doubt that that search warrants having to do an affidavit each time to get the approval of a judge each time you get uh, access to the server is is a somewhat cumbersome and uh, and slow process. And I presume if you're seeking a new search warrant each time you are proving your probable cause for the search anew. Is that correct? That's exactly right. Uh, you would essentially have to, to draft a, an, an affidavit. Certainly that would build on, on prior affidavits, but a judge would expect that each time you're, you're coming to him or her with, with a new affidavit, that it includes updates based on what you've learned from the last uh, search. And so there, there's work involved by uh, U.S. Attorney's Office and the relevant investigators to, to put pen to paper and, and to draft that affidavit. And then there's the process of getting that reviewed by, by a court. And so it's it's a process that that takes days, if not weeks, and and so there's 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 room to make that faster. I, I should also say, you know, there's an interesting question about if search warrants like this are are used in quick succession, whether whether they begin to approach uh, a wiretap. You know, a wiretap is obviously real time collection of communications and. There are special processes for obtaining wiretaps that include additional 
minimization and, and, and search requirements related to the collection of, of those wiretaps. And, you know, we don't know how frequently these warrants were, th- were sought, but some courts, uh, if, if, if they start to be used in quick succession, might, might start to question whether additional restrictions along the lines of, of those that apply to wiretaps are, are appropriate to, to the search warrants being used here. I realize we're speculating a bit, but presumably if the government could arrest some of these Hive ransomware group members, they would then be entitled to discovery, which would likely include all of these search warrants. You know, is is there potentially a legal issue? Might a defendant try and argue that the government, in effect, was engaging in a wiretap uh, without having obtained a wiretap order? Well, I guess I would say I, I have no doubt that defendants will find creative arguments, and and that certainly is one one they could throw out. I I don't know that that. I see this as a, as a situation where evidence would be suppressed as a result of the fact that that a series of search warrants were obtained in this case. There's no doubt in my mind that this was criminal infrastructure, that the, the purpose of these servers was to operate the back end and front end portions of, of the ransomware operation, and that the information that was obtained was, you know, squarely evidence of a crime and, and precisely the evidence of, of the crime that that was laid out in in the affidavit. And so I, I have a hard time seeing this being a, a challenge that would compromise the ability of prosecuting one of the defendants in, in this case. But it's, you know, it, it's an argument that that I'm sure the Department of Justice is thinking about in 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 that courts may think about too. And it's one that likely would play out more in the context of what the government needs to do to obtain the search warrant in the first place in terms of the uh, of the protections built into how they conduct the the search and, and what they're looking for, rather than, than something that would be, you know, a Fourth Amendment challenge to the, the warrant. So Alex, zooming out a bit more broadly, as you look at this particular operation in the context of, you know, the government's uh, whole of government efforts to disrupt ransomware, what should we understand? What, what can be said about the nature of this operation and how it fits into that broader picture? So Stephanie, I, I think we're starting to see, and, and it, it, you know, I would have said this even before the, the Hive operation was, was disclosed, but we're, we're seeing a bit of a momentum shift in the countering of of ransomware. I, I think for the first time, we're seeing indications that fewer victims are paying and that ransomware groups are making less money than than they were in 2022 and 2021. And I think there's a number of reasons for that. Um, there's the fact that Fewer victims are paying because they've established more resilient defenses. People have started to adopt the technologies that are most likely to be helpful in responding to ransomware attacks. Companies have uh, developed more robust incident response plans. They've 
gotten the assistance of experts who can help them be more resilient in the face of these attacks. I, I also think that the disruptions in the actions of the U.S. government are are paying off too. We have seen the Department of Justice go after the individuals responsible for ransomware, the infrastructure, both in terms of the, you know, the hive backend servers, as we see in this case, but also the infrastructure that these groups are using to transfer Bitcoin to launder the funds through various tumbling services, mixing services and, and exchanges. And so on, on the one end, we've seen victims who have better defenses and are less willing to pay. And on the other side, we've seen efforts to increase the costs of engaging in this kind of activity. And I certainly don't think we have solved the problem of of ransomware, but it does seem like we are finally reaching an equilibrium and and maybe even seeing the initial trend line towards a, a decline. And that's really welcome news because the the reality is for the last four or five years, this has been a problem that has has grown exponentially year over year. And it is is welcome news to see to see some uh, stabilization. Is there anything else that you would like to share with our listeners? It's an interesting topic. It'll be interesting to see what the Department of Justice does does next. There's there's no doubt this will not be the last um ransomware disruption we see. And, you know, they, they deserve credit each time that we've seen one of these disruptions. It has been more significant than, than the last. And, uh, and, and I'm confident this won't be the, the last one of these operations that, that we see. Well, thank you so much for joining me. And if there are future ransomware disruption efforts, I, I hope you'll come back to talk about them. I'll be here. Thanks so much, Stephanie. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare Podcasts by becoming a Lawfare Material supporter at patreon.com slash lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for our other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, Allies, and The Aftermath our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6th. Check out our written work at lawfareblog.com. The podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell and your audio engineer this episode was Noam Osband of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love. And be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.